Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, uh, Megan and Mary Lou, for the time of worship that we enjoyed. And I, I too, thank Jason and Caleb for all that they do to, to make this happen for us on a weekly basis. So much appreciate our whole team working here. I hope your Sunday is going well, your Mother's Day is going well. And um, as I hope the forecast for snow hasn't come true this morning for Mother's Day. So I hope it's a lovely day. It's, it's, um, it's prior to Sunday that we're recording this. So um, I hope you're having a wonderful Mother's Day. Let me pray as we dive into God's word this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, this day that is a gift from you. We praise you for it. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together, even if it's in our homes, to gather together, to worship you together as a church family. And um, Lord Jesus, we, we praise your name. We praise with worship, we praise with prayer, we praise with, with a, a sacrifice of praise coming from us. And uh, let all that we do be worthy of praise for you this morning. So, as we dive into your word this morning, Lord Jesus, I, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, as you have promised, that you would draw near, that you would, that you would empower the word of God, your word, Lord Jesus, to, uh, to work in our hearts and to bring transformation, to draw us closer to you, to help us grow deeper in who you are. So we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. So kids, this morning I am going to make an attempt at scripting the direction of your growing up years. Now I know that that, I, I feel like that seems kind of bold of me to tell you how your life is going to go. But I have observed a pattern that I think holds true in some form for each person, whether you're a child or whether you're an adult. Now I don't pretend that I can give you the details of your life. I'm not going to tell you who you're going to marry. I'm not going to tell you what, what high school you're going to or what class you're going to take. But I can tell you that what I have observed happens in most families. It's more of a trajectory than a detailed prognostication. So this is unscientific, and my observations are very, very general, but let's, let's try it out. And parents, along the way, I'm, moms and dads, I'm going to try it on you as well. I think the same patterns might evolve in our lives as parents as well. So you see if my, my observations hold true for your parenting directions. First of all, we see children come into the world and they're, they have the faith, as the scripture tells us, faith of an innocent child. And it's, it's pure innocence, it's pure joy in that little bundle of joy that we bring home from the hospital. And for parents, it is pure joy in this, this new life, in this innocent life, this beautiful, beautiful gift that comes from God. We, we take nothing but joy in that, in those first days and moments as new parents. And then kids, as you, as you get a little older, as, as you move from being a baby to an infant, you, there's, there's a growing trust in your parents. There's an absolute trust. There's absolute security in our parents. But then toddlers begin to explore and their curiosity takes over and they start to get into everything and they are busy, busy, busy. And so for parents, it moves from pure joy in this new life to an onset of stress and busyness and sometimes feeling overwhelmed, especially if there are multiple children in the house. There are sleepless nights. It's a complete change of life. That's another stage. And then kids, as you grow older, as, as you move in your toddler years, and I've been told it starts around the age of three. We learn 
about our free will. We learn that we have an independent spirit. And so we learn to challenge authority. And you hear smaller kids say things like, let me do it, or you can't tell me what to do. And that's when we see temper tantrums and all those kinds of things happening, a challenge to authority. At the same time, parents then are, are going along in this process and you might hear a mom or dad say that they're tired of being the boss all the time. They're tired of having to assert authority all the time. Tired of chasing my kids around and being the authority all the time. And then kids, as you grow older, there's a, there's a time when you're trying to figure out your parents. And this, this probably goes on for a long time. And you try to figure out your parents because, in your opinion, they're just too strict. They're just unfair. And then at other times, they're loving and they're generous, and so it's back and forth and back and forth, and kids, you're trying to figure that all out. At the same time, parents are trying to figure out their kids, and they're asking, why do they do what they do? And parents want to know, how can I help them to be good kids? And you see, parenting, parenting as we're raising our kids starts to be kind of tricky. Each child is different, every personality is different, every bent is different. And so it gets tricky and parents are trying to figure out kids, kids are trying to figure out parents, and that goes on in the stages of our lives. And then kids, as you grow older, you start to find your wings, you start to experience sports and, and you come up with different hobbies and maybe, maybe you're taking music lessons and you're learning how to play an instrument or learning how to, to sing or maybe you're involved in drama. Whatever it is, you're discovering different gifts that you have and different abilities that you have and you're trying out new things and some things work and some things don't and some things you take joy in and some other things you don't really have much passion for. But you're, you're, you're finding your wings. You're learning who you are. And parents, you're proud of who they are becoming. And you saw it in the, in the video that we just watched and one mom got out of her car and she said, I've got lots of bleacher butt from sitting and watching your kids. That's when parents are proud of who their kids are becoming. And then we enter the dreaded teen years. And for kids, for teens, your mom and dad all of a sudden become people that don't know anything. Some, some kids might even think that their parents are idiots. And there's a rebellious spirit that begins to, to brew and to grow inside of your heart. And sometimes it seems like you come to mom and dad in times of need, but other times you don't need your parents at all. Those are some of the characteristics of our teen years. And then we saw this in the video again, where the mom is standing at the door of uh, the bedroom of one of her children and she's asking the questions, do they love me? Do they love me? And parents in, in, in this stage, and, and maybe all of their lives, I'm not sure, but we, we find ourselves praying that they will find their way home. We find ourselves praying that they'll find truth. We find ourselves praying that they'll find faith, that their faith would become their faith, and not just because you say so, it would become their faith. And we pray that all those things happen before our child becomes a prodigal. In all of this, moms and dads are trying to figure out how to parent their children well. When we ask the questions, when am I as a parent, when, when do I need to assert authority? When do I, or when am I a friend more than a parent? Those are dynamics that we're constantly trying to balance out in our parenthood. When do I insert myself as a counselor? When, 
And when do I let my kids and my teens figure things out on their own? And kids, in all of this, you continually face a decision. And that decision is this, do I trust that my parents love me? Do I trust that they want the best for me? Will, even in circumstances and, and decisions that they're making and things that they're doing, and I don't understand it, will I trust that they love me? Or will I continue to rebel against them? Will I continue to assert myself in my own life and, and reject my parents? That's, that's the decision that we face. Every one of us have faced that decision. In our growing up years and even in our adult years, we still wrestle with that decision. Will I trust? In every stage of childhood, in every stage of parenting, we face the same decisions. So last week we studied the Apostle Peter's letter to the exiled church and his call for us to be holy as God is holy. Now, we talked about this, but it's an impossible standard that, that on the face of it. See, before we even consider our own holiness, we have to conclude that we've already lost the battle. We can't live up to it. I'm, I'm, gra I'm grateful. Fortunately, Peter hasn't left us in that place. He continues to show us what it means to live out God's holiness. And so in today's passage, Peter continues the teaching. And his starting point in God's holiness is that God is a judge, the judge, and that we will be judged. God, in his holiness, holds us to a strict standard and will hold us to his expectations. It seems to me that there's yet more weight of holiness. But as Peter continues, he shows us what God does for us, what God has done for us, and that he continues to do for us, and that our hope is not in ourselves, but it's in his work, it's in his plan, and it's, it's, it's in his power. And as Peter walks us through the idea of holiness and how we need to be holy as God is holy, as he walks us through that idea today, we move from God the judge to God our Savior, and to God our Father, the one in whom we place our faith and our hope. So you see, today's gospel, today's message, today's passage is, is the gospel message. But I realize as I think about this that it leaves us in the same place as our kids face, as we as children faced as we were growing up as well. The same questions as we confront our parents, as we think about parents and whether they love us or not. Do they love me? And do they want what's best for me? You see, the same issues apply to our faith. In all of the difficulties of life, in the discipline of God in my life, do I understand the critical truth that he loves me, that he pursues me, and that he is working out his perfect will in my life? Do I trust that? And our answer to that question will either give us hope or it will lead us further into rebellion. It will lead us into holiness that he is calling us to, or it will detour us from our faith. So let's look at it. First Peter chapter 1. Turn with me if you would. Our passage today is, is, starts at verse 17, but for the sake of gathering, of coming into it, let me start at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And here's verse 17. This is where we'll start today. 
And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, are in God. So let's, 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 let's start back at verse 17. God is our judge. That's where Peter starts in, his help, in, in helping us to understand what holiness means. But I have, to, I have to ask ourselves, can we just be honest here? You see, we don't think of God as our judge. We think of him as a judge, as a judge, when it comes to non-believers, when it, becomes, when it, comes, when it comes to the, the people around us who, who don't, don't listen to God. In fact, his justice and his judgment of all the evil that's around us, that, well, that brings us comfort as we consider the evil and the evildoers of the world as we consider that they will one day face God. There's a comfort in that, that God will, will balance things out, that his justice will indeed rule one day in light of all the evil that goes on around us. So we understand that God is the judge, but he's not our judge. But Peter would disagree with us in verse 17. He says, if you call on him as father, let me start there before we dive into the idea of judge. If we call on him as father. You see, we call on the name of the Lord for our salvation. When, when, when we realize that we need a savior, when we realize our own sin and we, need, we understand that we need to come to Jesus for salvation. There's, that's a time when we realize our need for Christ. We need to be obedient to the call of salvation. And so we call on him. We call on him to save us. But that's not the understanding here. If you call on him as father. You see, that's not, that's not what Peter's getting at. Peter is identifying believers who regularly identify, regularly call on the name of the Lord. Those who come often to the Lord in prayer. Those who come to him in confession of sin. Those who come to him in, with, with requests and petitions and calling on God to meet the needs in our life. That's a regular approaching of God. That's a regular calling out to God. This teaching is for those who walk in the Lord and who daily call on him for their needs. Peter says that he, the one they call on as their father, is a judge who judges impartially. You see, God is no respecter of persons. Let me read it again. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each, one de each one's deeds. You see, Peter's not talking about a final judgment. He's not talking about judgment concerning our salvation or our entrance into heaven. Romans 8.1 is clear about that. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We also know that our entrance into heaven or our relationship with the Heavenly Father, with Jesus Christ, is not linked in any way to works. It's only by the grace of God. It's only by the work of God. And we've gone over that earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's only by the work of Christ. But as we discussed previously, as believers, we will be judged as to how we have lived out our faith. 
Romans 14, 2 says this, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, as believers, we will stand before the Lord, before the Lord as our judge, not for salvation, but for how we've lived. And Peter tells us that this truth should alter the direction of our lives. If, if we put our lives by faith in God, and if we continually call on him to meet our needs, Peter says then we need to align our lives by faith in him. We need to obey him. We talked about that in verses 13 and 14. But Peter adds to this obedience. He says this, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You see, oftentimes when it comes to fear, we, we consider fear in, in, as the idea of respect. And we need to respect God in holy reverence. And that's indeed a part of the aspect of fear that we are called to as followers of Christ, especially as it relates to our worship. We come to him in fear. We come to him in reverence. We come to his holiness, understanding that he is holy. We come to him as God. That's reverence. That's, that's fear of God. But that's not the exact idea that Peter's getting at here. This fear is, is a much profound, more profound fear, a, a real fear, not a watered-down version of fear. It means, if I can be redundant, it means to be afraid. It even carries the weight of being terrified in the presence of God. You see, Peter is calling us to be concerned about offending this holy God. He's calling us to be concerned of his righteous discipline of us. In fact, Scripture tells us that one of the marks of those who reject God are those who have no fear of God. This fear should have the result of us living our lives in the shadow of his holiness. This fear should cause us to approach every aspect of our lives in concern for God's pleasure, for his perfect will to be done in our life. It's this fear that causes us to grow in maturity, to grow in holiness. The Apostle Paul tells us that we're to work out our faith in fear and trembling as God works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you hear that? Work out your faith with fear and trembling. The writer of Hebrews goes even farther and he declares that the Lord disciplines those he loves. See, as we walk in a healthy fear of a holy God, he, in contrast, as a loving father, disciplines us to walk in his life and his truth. He's molding us and shaping us. In Acts chapter 5, there's, a, there's an appropriate illustration of this truth. It's the, it's the first church. It's in the early days of the first church. And we're told a story of a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, what happened in the early church, in the first church, and it, this, is, this is remarkable, they, people would bring in resources, and goods and money, and all, they'd make all kinds of contributions, they would sacrifice, and then they would pool these resources to meet the needs of those who had needs in their congregation in the church. They pulled it all together. Some even sold land and gave the money to the apostles. It says that they laid the, 
their, their, their finances at the feet of the apostles is to be used for the sake of the church and for those in the church. And so a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira come along and they too sold a piece of land. They sold it uh, and, and, and came and gave the, the proceeds to the brothers. But listen to this. I'll start reading at verse 1, chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what's the problem? What's the problem? Ananias and Sapphira had conspired together and they brought in the proceeds from their land and they, they made it look like they were giving all of the proceeds from the land and instead they were holding back and they were giving just a percentage to the church. And they kept some for themselves, but they didn't tell that to Peter and the apostles. You catch that? Let's read on. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So you, if you understand the story, Ananias lied about giving all the money. Now the issue wasn't that he gave a part of it. That was not the issue. The issue was that he lied about it. And Peter said, you didn't lie to me about it, although he probably thought he was lying to Peter and to the apostles. He was lying. Peter said, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. You're lying to God about this. And what happened? Luke tells us that he fell down and he breathed his last. That means he fell over and died right then and there. Three hours later, Sapphira came, his wife Sapphira came in the, in the door and she brought her, her offerings and she came in and told the same story to the apostles. And you know how the story goes. They carried her out as well. But I want you to look at verse 11. Verse 11 says this. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. You see, Fear fell over the church. Why? Because God is holy. And they realized that this salvation that they had, that Peter is explaining to them, that, they have, that the new church is founded on, this gospel message is not only about salvation, but it's about recognizing that God is holy and that my life needs to line up to it. And when they saw what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, and Sapphira they understood that God's holiness had a practical implication to it. God's holiness demanded my obedience. God's holiness demanded that I align my life with his will, his ways, his truth, his grace. You see, yes, Jesus is our redeemer. Yes, Jesus calls us to be his friend. Yes, there is indeed no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But faith calls us, faith in Christ calls us to walk in holiness. Because God is our judge. Let's keep going. Peter goes on to talk about this holiness in, in verses 18 to 20. And all of this talk of holiness is frankly overwhelming to me, and I assume it is to you as well. 
I hope that it leaves us realizing that we're incapable of fulfilling this command of God to be holy. You see, I think Peter is fully aware of this. And without taking a breath, he moves into verse 18 and he tells us why this is a work of God and it's not of ourselves. This is the gospel. We have not been left to our own strength alone to follow Christ. And verse 18 is a continuation of this discussion and, and it, it, turns all the, it turns towards all that God has done for us in order to live as he calls us. In verse 18, he starts with this, knowing that you were ransomed. He starts with knowing that. These are, this is what we need to know. And he says, you were ransomed. See, we tend to generalize this idea by saying that we're saved. And that's, that's true. That's, that's, a, that's a great way to summarize what God has done for us. But in this case, Peter chooses a very deliberate idea and a very intentional word when he says, we have been ransomed. It means a price has been paid for us and it's been paid for our freedom. It also means, and this, is, this gets at the heart of it, it means that our lives have been transferred from one place to another. You have been purchased to live an entirely different life. Ephesians 2 says, 2.10 says that we are his workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not because of good works, but for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, we've been purchased with a price, ransomed out of this life and into this life. And as we look on farther in verse 18, Peter goes on to, 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 to put the context of this ransoming into the, into the picture of ancestry. Look at verse 18, let's read it. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. From the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. If we look back at, verses, at verse 14 of this chapter, Peter says that we are to turn from our former passions. Turn away from them. We are to turn away from our former ignorance before we met Christ. And now, he says, we're to turn away from the futility of our former life. You see, this former life is deeply ingrained in us. And Peter says in this text, he says that it comes from our forefathers. Now, the Jewish mindset, if a Jewish person is reading this, the mindset would be that of generations, multiple generations, because they put a lot of emphasis on genealogy and history and, and where we've come from and family and generations. It may even include the giving of the law all the way back to Exodus 19 and 20. The giving of the law with all of its legal demands and expectations, all, all brought along and all even transformed over the course of generations. When I think about this idea of generations and inheriting from our forefathers, I, there's a recent set of commercials that are coming out from Progressive Insurance. You've probably seen them. Their theme is that of young families who are suddenly buying homes and then turning into their parents. And I find those commercials very humorous. They catch us at being, being ourselves. They catch us about being concerned now, not as young people, about cars and whatever else they're things of life that young people are concerned about. Now, if we buy a house, now we're concerned about lawnmowers. Now we're concerned about attic insulation. And now we're concerned about, in one commercial, even pillows on the couch. Great commercial. But they end their commercials by saying they can help with insurance, but they can't keep you from turning into your parents. 
How many of us, I wonder, as adults, have, have had moments when we stop and realize we just did exactly what our parents do? And in that moment, when that light bulb goes on, we say to ourselves, oh no, I've become my parents. Now, that can be a good thing in many cases, and, but in some cases, yeah, we kind of hesitate at that idea. What's not so funny is the fact that patterns of behavior, patterns of attitudes, patterns of lifestyles are passed down from generation to generation. Scripture is even more explicit. It says this, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 20. One of the things I enjoy doing with pre-marriage counseling is to have the couples do a genogram. It's a diagram of a family tree, and the couple, each individual, then fills out the family tree with names and marriages and children and things like that. And by the time they're done, they have three generations back, and they have a wide family tree with cousins and siblings and all of that. And it's all laid out on a sheet of paper. Now it doesn't, and, and, and in, the, in the doing, in filling out the genogram, you just make notations in each, each of the marriage relationships, each of the people. Uh, this person was a follower of Christ. This person had a, uh, an addiction problem. This person, is, they got divorced. You just write down every characteristic, positive traits and negative traits. You write it all down as you think of it on, and, and uh, you write it all down on the genogram. And it doesn't always happen. But oftentimes, it reveals patterns or issues that will likely follow a person into their marriage. Sometimes we, I can sit down with a couple and I can say, see, see, this happens here and this happens here and this happens here. What do you think that means for your marriage? Because the idea is that things follow down from generation to generation. And the genogram is a visual image of this truth that patterns, that patterns, traditions, and even sin is passed down through the generations. Peter says that God has brought about a redemption that can and will break the chain of generational sin and bondage. Peter reviews this great salvation for us again in light of what it means to be holy, to be as God is holy. Let me read, I'll start at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. You see, we've been ransomed by God, and the ransom is paid by the precious, precious blood of Jesus Christ. So rather than go through the, the details of this salvation, which we've explored in depth in the first part of chapter 1, I'd like to look at what, what comes from this great salvation. What are the results of this great salvation? What are the results of the blood of Christ being shed on the cross and paying the penalty for our sin, ransoming us for new life in Him? What are those results? In his commentary on 1 Peter, Wayne Grudem says it like this, By the blood of Christ, our consciences are cleansed. By the blood of Christ, we gain bold access to God in worship and prayer. By the blood of Christ, we are, we are progressively cleansed from more and more sin. By the blood of Christ, we are able to, account, we are able to 
conquer the accuser of the brethren. We're able to have victory over, over sin, over, over Satan and all of his influence and all of his bondage of us. And he goes on to say that we're rescued out of a sinful way of life. And Peter would say that we're, we're, we're he would add that we are, we are saved from the ingrained patterns of sin and, and the human wisdom that has followed us and it doesn't line up with who God is. All of that is broken. And the power of it is broken. So we could add a long list of results and benefits from Christ, from his death and from his resurrection. We're given the Holy Spirit. We have access to God in prayer. We have the multitude of promises that come to us because of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. We've quoted Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15, earlier in our discussion last week. It says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, as we consider the command to be holy as God is holy, we have the authority, we have the power, we have the strength to live the life that God, has, that God promises to us. And it's all possible by the work that Christ has done for us on the cross, the payment of sin that he has made. All of our debts have been canceled, our sin is canceled, our sin is forgiven, and all the authorities in the heavenly realm no longer have uh, authority over us. If all those things that keep me from living in Christ have been nailed to the cross, that means that they are disarmed in our life. They have no power, they have no authority over me. You see, we go from our life being scripted to, to in, in sin to certain things and bondage in certain directions, but no longer. In Christ Jesus, my life isn't scripted for sin anymore. My life isn't scripted to remain in generational sin. My life isn't scripted to remain in the addictions that seem to me to be insurmountable, but now all of a sudden, they, victory in Christ is possible. My brokenness is now, can now be transformed into healing. My attitudes, which didn't reflect Christ, didn't reflect holiness, didn't reflect purity in the past, are now able to reflect God's wisdom and God's grace. God is transforming us. All of, that, all of that bondage and sin has been broken because of what Jesus has done for us. And as I think about it, the sojourners that Peter is writing to, the, those, those who are in exile, he would say to them, you don't have to be conformed to the culture anymore. You don't have to be conformed to the traditions anymore. You don't have to be conformed to the legalism anymore. You don't have to be conformed to the lifestyle of the pagans anymore. And I think he would say to them, you don't have to live as victims anymore. We don't have to cower in fear. Today, I just wonder today, in our victimhood mentality, in our culture, I wonder if we don't realize that that can be broken in Jesus Christ. So many of us walk around and in the world around us walk around saying, well, this terrible thing happened to me or I was born this way. I was born with this color of the skin. I, all these things that we categorize ourselves in. means that I can't live a life of hope anymore because, because I've got this barrier, this terrible incident, the incident this injustice, this, this, this abuse, this oppression, this depravity that's happened to me. All of a sudden, I need to walk around as a victim. No, not in Christ any longer. That thing, that event, that person no longer has authority over you because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. You're no longer a victim 
You live in hope. You live in strength. You live in power. Holiness is a command for us. Holiness is something that we strive for and we lean into. But I want you to hear, brothers and sisters, we walk in obedience, but it's not dependent on our righteousness. It's not dependent on us being good enough for God. It doesn't depend on our own strength. Our holiness was accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. There he paid the penalty for sin. There we became righteous and holy in Jesus Christ before God the Father. Our life in holiness is continually accomplished as we turn to Christ. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Verse 21. Verse 20. He says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. The third idea is that God is our Father. God is our judge. God is our salvation. And now God is our Father. There's one more foundation that we need to know as we lean into what it means to be holy as God is holy. Peter says that he was foreknown. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world. Now, it's not simply a foreknowledge. You see, this has been God's plan since the beginning of time. Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as suffering servant, Jesus as our Redeemer, was predetermined before time began. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an idea that God said all of a sudden when sin came in the world or when, 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 when sin was running amok in the world, God didn't wake up one morning and say, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? It was from the beginning of time, God purposed in his son Jesus Christ to redeem us, to ransom us. Your name, your life, your circumstances, your eternal destiny was all known to God before the earth was created. You see, you can be holy because God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And again, I remind you of Ephesians 2.10 that says we've been saved for good works that we might walk in them in ages past. Your life has meaning. Your life has purpose as you lean into Christ, as you lean into the work that he is doing in your life. His work transforms your life into the holy life that God intends. It's his plan, it's his purpose, and it's his will for you. Yours is to walk in obedience as he leads. And Peter says, in all of this, your faith and your hope are in God alone. So what do we do with this? God is our judge, Peter explains to us. God is our salvation, Peter explains to us. God is our father. We go from standing in awe and fear of God as our judge to the end of the passage, our faith and our hope are in him as our father. I praise God that he doesn't leave us to figure all this out on our own. His command to be holy is accompanied by his purpose, by his pursuing, by his work in my life. The good news of the gospel is the power of God at work in us. Our calling to holiness, brothers and sisters, is a calling to repentance. As Peter began this passage, he, he says, if you call on him as father, do you call on the name of God? But I, ask, I have to ask the question, do you yet resist the discipline of God? 
Is there sin in your life? Do you harbor sin in your heart, in your life? Are you unwilling to yield something over to Jesus? Could it be that your life is stuck? Could it be that your circumstances are difficult? Your circumstances are overwhelming because you have this hidden sin in your heart that you refuse to deal with? God says, be holy as I am holy. And that means repentance. That means recognizing our sin and confessing it to God and giving it over to him. That's the process of holiness in our life. It could be that there's something dysfunctional in your life going on right now, something that you just can't get hold of because God is trying to get your attention because of that sin. God is calling you to repent of it today and turn to him. Our calling of holiness is also a stewardship. It's a calling to stewardship. I think it's especially appropriate on this Mother's Day that we have a calling and a stewardship to raise our kids in the Lord. Yes, the sins of the forefathers can follow the next generations, but moms and dads, you have an opportunity to change the course of generations in your family. And I think that's an amazing aspect of the gospel. It starts with you, mom. It starts with you, dad, to get your life right with God to enter into a relationship with God. And, I, and as I like to say, you drive a stake in the ground. And it's not just a stake in the ground for your life. It's not just a turning point in your life. It's a turning point in the generations. And as you lead your children in the grace and the truth and the wisdom of God, as you teach your children about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for them, and as you lead your child to a place where they can make a decision for Christ, you change the generations. The flip side of that is our kids make their own decisions. All we can do is lead them. But moms and dads, you have an opportunity in your children to lead them to Christ. Our calling to holiness is a calling to stewardship of all that God has given us. And finally, our calling to holiness is a calling to Christ. In Exodus 19 and 20, we have the record of God drawing near to, to his people, the people of Israel. He came to them on the mountain. They had just been redeemed from Egypt. They had just been brought out of slavery in Egypt. And God, God now in Exodus 19 and 20 was about to, to reveal himself to them. He's going to show, him, show them who he is and, and talk to them and reveal his character and his person and, and his relationship with them. So they come to the mountain and the mountain is, is, has God's presence there. And this is actually a wedding ceremony between God and his people. But the mountain in God's presence in his holiness is surrounded by smoke, it's surrounded by fire and thunder is, is, is peeling back the night skies and lightning is lighting up the skies. Earthquakes are shaking the ground underneath the people. This, this holy presence was awesome in the truest sense of the word. The people were told to consecrate themselves before they came to the Lord, to set themselves apart. Don't you come to the presence of a holy God without setting yourself apart. They needed to be holy in order to stand in his presence. So God gave them instructions on how to, how to set themselves apart, how to consecrate themselves to come into God's presence. But as the story goes on in Exodus 20, they were so terrified of God's presence that, that they actually told Moses to talk to God and then tell them what he said. You see, God wanted to speak directly to them, but they turned it around and they said, oh, we're, we're terrified of this holy God. And we don't want to hear his voice. I'm here to tell you today that at that mountain, 
in that moment with the decision they made to reject his voice, that broke God's heart. You see, he offered them relationship and they chose distance. He offered presence and they chose to hide. He offered access to his presence and they chose a mediator between them. He offered a holy fear to escape sin and they chose an unholy fear that kept them away from God. You see, we face that same choice today. And just as kids need to decide continually about whether whether their parents love them or what the motives of their parents are, so we need to decide about who God is. We need to decide, is he he a a stern judge that seeks only to discipline us and that just drops a heavy hand on us? Or is he a loving father who pursues us, who saves us, who disciplines for the life that he is for us? who disciplines us so that he can work out his good and, per, good and pleasing will in our life. And I ask the question today, what will you choose? Will you walk with confidence into his holiness and will you obey his leading? Will you set yourself apart to claim his power and his new life? Or will you choose to continue your struggle with sin in your own futile strength? That's the decision that Peter brings us to today. How will you come to God? Amen. Thank you for that time of worship, Megan. I'd like to close our time in prayer. Lord Jesus, this call to holiness is is awe-filled for us. And, And we realize as we think about the people of Israel standing at the mountain or we think of Ananias and Sapphira who who chose to wink at their own sin, who chose to to not not understand you as holy and worthy of our reverence. We understand that coming to you is, is a serious, serious matter. We can only come to you if we are consecrated, if we are set apart for you, and if our sin is, is dealt with. But we praise you today, Lord Jesus, that you have you have saved us by your Son Jesus. Father, you have saved us. Your son Jesus came to pay the penalty, to pay the ransom for us. We praise you for that. And I pray today that as we face this choice, as we confront this, these issues in our life, if, as you surface areas of sin and darkness in our life that need to, be, need to have your light shown upon them, Lord, we pray that you would find us obedient, that you'd find us willing to fall to our knees and repent of our sin and to claim your new life for us. Lord, you have made us righteous. You have made us holy in your presence by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would continue to work that out in our lives, that we may be, as you have commanded us, holy as you are holy. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. On your way, rejoicing.